Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily Digest. I'm Ben Olson, that's Nathan Fox. Together we're the founders of LSATdemon.com and our weekly podcast, Thinking LSAT. Here's what we talked about this week. We have an email here from VW. Hello again. I've been having more difficulties with LR and RC questions. I took your advice from last time and have been attending those guilty, not guilty classes. Okay, so there's an LR class that's called guilty, that's not Kevin's guilty. That's Kevin's class, yeah. Yeah, trying to figure out the validity of arguments. And they've been a great help. Thanks, live! Exclamation point. Prediction is still something that's growing on me, and I'm getting better with it, but I found that understanding the key differences between certain words, such as between many, most, all, etc., has been the biggest leap forward for me. However, even after continued drilling in classes, I'm still stuck in on a plateau where I'm typically missing 7 to 11 questions on both sections. I'd love to know, uh, VW, what your accuracy scores are. You know, people come in and they tell us how many they're getting wrong in a section. I'd like to know what percentage of the ones that you're doing are you getting right. Anyways, that would be interesting, right? My LG score is now almost perfect every single practice test that I'm at taking. My reasoning is super analytical and I'm used to seeing only one correct answer, which is probably why I'm having some trouble with predictions, since sometimes I'll predict an answer that could be right and be way off compared to the answer choices. Okay, I really have two questions, semicolon, one more broad and the other more narrow. That's a bad semicolon, VW. Yep, you could do an M dash there. That would have done it. Maybe a colon? Or a colon, either one. Yep, they would have equated the two questions with what you then defined as your two questions. <laughs> Can't be a semicolon because what comes after the semicolon isn't a complete sentence. Yep, needs to be a new sentence. Okay. I've read that... Uh, for LG, for games, that there is a certain order in which to complete the questions. And I've heard before of some of the LR te techniques for taking sections. Okay. <laughs> this, this is a little bit all over the place. Are there any tips in ordering which questions I should tackle or should I just go straight through? Uh, for logical reasoning and for reading comp, just go straight through. The more broad question is whether or not I should really focus on honing prediction skills or steer more towards learning the question types on logical reasoning and reading comp. I just saw in a lesson that all reading comp questions are must be true questions. So I'm going to try and apply that in my next drills slash practice sections. Yeah, like 26 out of 27 reading comp questions are just must be trues. They might throw in a strengthen or a weaken, but you'll notice it when they say which one of the following if true, undermines the logic in whatever part. So yeah, that's a weakened question, but everything else is just must be trues. If, if I had to pick between honing prediction skills or learning question types for LR, I, I don't know yeah. why I have to pick, but if I had to pick, I would definitely pick get better at prediction skills. And what I mean by that is get better at attacking the argument in the first place. Question types are important, but you also, if you just read the question carefully enough, I mean, it means what it says. So you don't have to perseverate on question types. Also, there's only like 10 or 12 different types, so it's not that hard to familiarize yourself with those types. Yeah. I mean, but, one thing that, v, sorry, real quick, VW said about predictions, right? It says, while I'm having some trouble with predictions, since sometimes I predict an answer that could be right and be way off compared to the answer choices. Well, maybe that is a problem with the argument, but you didn't see the other two problems with the argument? That's what I'm guessing here. Or, Either your prediction is wrong or you're just not seeing all the problems. Yeah, and... I think that this is probably happening a lot on strengthen questions or weaken questions. Some question types have real wide ranges of possible answers. I mean, if an argument is incomplete, then there are infinite ways to strengthen it and there are also infinite ways to weaken it. So you might have come up with a good strengthener or a good weakener, but there are a hundred other strengtheners and weakeners. And so you got to be able to roll with it. Once you get down into those answers, you got to be able to recognize, oh, okay. So my prediction wasn't here, but this is also a good one. Yeah. Or, and this is what I, I see so often in class is people will predict a problem and I'll say, hmm, 
yeah, that that is a problem with the argument, but it's not the most glaring and it's not the thing I'm jumping up and down about, but you're jumping up and down about it because you're being so technical and technically you're right, but what about the glaring issue from going from correlation to causation or something like that? Like they're yeah. missing the elephant in the room for something else, which is a problem, but not that serious. Yeah. The answer is both VW. You need to get better at predicting. And what I really mean by that is you need to get better at attacking the arguments in the first place. But then, yeah, you need to be familiar with the various types of questions. Like you need to know the difference between a flaw question and a weakened question, for example, because they they just have different types of correct answers. A flaw question is asking you to describe the flaw that exists in the argument. So you have to be able to prove the answer that you pick based on the record. Whereas mm -hmm. a weakened question is, hey, which one of these five, if it's true, is going to weaken the argument? And they are, those are different things. I mean, they're, they're just not asking you the same question. So it is a good, a good idea to make sure you're comfortable with those question types. Like we wouldn't talk about question types if they weren't important. Yep. VW continues. I've taken the LSAT once already in November and I'm taking it again in January. So it's right around the corner again, kind of last minute, but I'd love any help. Last minute. It doesn't sound like you're ready to take it. Yeah. Just withdraw <laughs> from the January LSAT. You're not, you're not even close. Like if you don't, like you don't, you're not familiar with the question types on LR. Okay. Withdraw from the January LSAT. Yeah. I mean, I like if it's two weeks before your test and you have no familiarity with question types, you're not good at the LSAT. Like you're not, you're selling yourself short. If you take the test, just don't just like you, you need to take it seriously this time. You wasted an attempt in November. Don't waste another attempt in January. So VW continues, you guys are great, exclamation point. If the classes you taught weren't so late in the evening for me, I would be at most of them. I wonder what time zone VW's in because most of our classes <laughs> are all over the day. Right? Yeah, we we do have classes. I mean, like just taking um, today as a representative example, we had game of the day at noon Eastern. Yeah. Perfect 10 at 2 p.m. Eastern. Cross training at 2.30, sorry, at uh, 5.30 Eastern. What's he saying? The classes are late in the evening. He must be in like Europe or something. Yeah, I, that's what I'm guessing. Um, good news is all those classes are recorded. So you can watch them, you know, within 24 hours, they're going to be posted and you can still just, you can just kind of time shift it and you can still do all those classes even if you can't watch them live. Yeah. Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily. I'm Francesca, and I'm here with our former Demon student, Chris. How are you doing, Chris? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. We're happy to have you. We're here for an exciting reason. You're here to share your success story with everybody. Tell us how you crushed this test. So first of all, congratulations on the score. That must feel great. Yeah, it absolutely did. I mean... I don't know how much more I can say about that. It was just uh, once you got the goal score, it, it's uh, pretty much everything you want from it, right? Yeah, totally. Makes it worth it. Um, so why don't you start by giving us the like 50-foot view over your LSAT journey, um, diagnostic, final score, how long you're studying for? Um, <clears throat> okay, so I started in October or November of 2020. In October, I had a 152 diagnostic, uh, October 2020. I think I went through two other um, programs and then happened to find the podcast while looking for like LSAT, LSAT podcasts and came across the uh, thinking LSAT podcast. And, you know, from then, I think within a month I was using LSAT demon and um, everything started to just incrementally improve from there because of their focus on just understanding the tests and not the gimmicks, which is was so valuable. And they, they, they were like, this test is learnable. It's straightforward. It's understandable. And like, just going in with a mindset, everything continually improved. Like there was no more downward trends whatsoever. There may have been a few plateaus, but, um, you know, with like regular consistent studying, like it just continued to improve. Yeah. We'll come back to the plateaus because people always want to hear about that. That's a very common experience that happened to me too. 
it's funny that you found it through the podcast. That's how I found the demon as well, actually. Um, so glad you got a fellow podcast person here. When you finally took the test, what was your score in the end? Uh, my final score was a 170. Uh, so an 18 point improvement from a diagnostic. And I think every other program's like, we'll give you six points. We'll give you seven guaranteed points. And it's like 18 points is incredible, really. Yeah, we see that a lot because, again, it's about genuine understanding and people can get there. It's attainable. So congratulations. Very exciting. Um, so tell us more about the specifics of the studying. When were you frustrated? What were the plateaus like? How did you get over them? Man, I think, well, pre-LSAT Demon, the frustration came from they, you know, the first program I used just jumped into using phrases like contrapositive without ever having explained what that is. And then, you know, you get to the LSAT Demon and they're like, don't worry about stupid words like contrapositive. Like, yeah. we're just just understand what's wor what you're working on. And then, you know, the second program I used, it was reading the question first or reading the uh the prompt first and yeah. then going back and reading the uh the passage or something like that and it's like that very classic gimmick of like know what kind of thing you're looking for so it's just like again it's not about understanding so um that was frustrating that's what led me to after listening to the podcast and hearing these guys how they talked about it when they would do a an lr question on the podcast or something and and break it down sentence by sentence even that was just the beginning of really understanding it because you're not trying to get through as quickly as possible. You're just trying to read it for pure comprehension and understand what's being said. So, um, I, and I had a different, a couple different plateaus. Like after I got to LSAT demon, like I started getting into the one sixties and I think I plateaued around one sixty six for a while, whichever one that it was that I was struggling with. I spent the least time on like reading comprehension just because I think on the uh, diagnostic, I had minus four in reading comprehension. Mm -hmm. And then I just got really obsessive about like one particular area for a while. I don't know if that's, if that's good advice that I would share. Like, I'm not sure if they recommend just going through the whole thing all the time, like focus on each bit individually. But I know that logic games became my favorite thing to do when I started out probably minus 12 or 13. Um, and then logic games became so fun and, uh, I just made it. So I got to the point where that was minus zero. And then, um, you know, logical reasoning was like that one you had to, I think for me, uh, the plateau came from, uh, trying to get through it as quickly as possible and making that time limit. And then, you know, once they started, they talk about, um, Nate and, um, Ben talk about, uh, clicks, right? Like it needs to click for you. And, uh, I slowed it down to just reading one sentence. And so I really understood one sentence at a time. And I think from there, like, as I got through it, like you start to recognize like the logical fallacies that are, the test is testing you on to the point where like, if I was having a conversation with someone in real life, and I'd be like, that's correlation, not causation, actually. So I don't know if your argument really holds water right here. So um, it might have been just that being part of it that I was applying whatever it is that I was picking up from the test in real life yeah. as like kind of doing the LSAT all the time um, maybe helped with uh, breaking through those plateaus. It wasn't just something I did here at the computer. It was something like paying attention to how people are thinking and what they're saying and applying the same kind of critical analysis all the time. Absolutely. It's a way of thinking. Um, I actually always joke about that in my classes. When I talk about this, are you like a lawyer mentality on logical reasoning? You want to have that mentality, like you say, of like looking for the thing that the person said that was wrong or invalid in whatever way. But I always joke that like, you have to read LR the way that your loved ones don't want you to listen to them. Like just listening for the thing that's wrong and trying to break apart the argument. Uh, I see, I see the benefit to get better on the test, to bring that into your day-to-day -day life. But I also see how it can be beneficial to separate the two. Yeah. Um, and yeah, congrats on getting to minus zero on logic games. That's exactly what we want to see. Um, they're perfectible. They just aren't. Mm -hmm. They make perfect sense. Absolutely. They all do, but they all do. But logic games is probably the easiest to get that consistency on. The other thing I wanted to add about plateaus is that they're often frustrating because just because you're stuck in the present and you don't see what's coming. 
but in hindsight, you look back at a plateau and it's like, okay, like a couple of weeks, maybe like a month or so that you feel like you're stuck in the same place, but you're still building that like base of understanding of the test. Even when the scores aren't improving, maybe you're getting more accurate. Maybe you're getting quicker at catching your mistakes, right? There's still stuff that's happening, even if you don't see it immediately reflected in the scores. So if anybody out there, anybody out there is in that boat right now, don't worry, hang tight. You will overcome it. It's not linear. Progress is not linear on the test. Absolutely. And it's it's just like, if you get frustrated, I mean, just there's nothing wrong with taking breaks either. Like I took multiple study breaks throughout it. Not, I'm not talking like in the session, I would stop and take a break. I mean, like there were a couple times where I took a month off or something like that to just relax. Because I mean, um, I know Ben has talked about it. Like if it, if you go to the gym a lot, you know, at some point you're going to stop making improvement and you got to take a take a break so your muscles can reset. And I mean, this is a huge mental workout all the time and uh, stuff just becomes it becomes incomprehensible if you're doing it too much. And so taking breaks when especially when you feel like you're burning out and you're but you're so obsessed because you're like, this really matters. I need to get this done. I need to get a good score. But like, um, you know, I took a month at a time sometimes during my almost two years of studying to just let myself rest and reset. Yeah. And everybody's timeline's different. If you're studying for like four or six months or so, I mean, not that you don't know when you start out how long it's going to take you, but it's one thing to take a month off when you're studying for the test for four months. But when you're in it for the long run, you're like, listen, I'm going to do what it takes to get the score that I want. Then yeah, you might be at it for a while and you definitely are going to need a break. I, I stand by that. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing that uh, I think the biggest thing that led to me, you know, being able to get that 18 point improvement was that, you know, listening to thinking else at the guys say like law school is always going to be there. If you need to take more time to get the score, you can get like take more time. I think when I started studying in at the end of 2020, like I was so naive about what I was going to do. I was like, I'm going to take the test in April. I'm going to get my acceptance by August. I'm going to be in school by September, like that fall. Like had I done that, like, oh my goodness. I can't imagine like the like horrifying situation I could have been in with some like um, with a scammer ship or with just some like predatory law school that just like you know, feeds on the uh, tuition dollars of poor, uninformed students that don't think like long term about what they're getting themselves into and end up with two, three hundred thousand dollars, three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and no job prospects. And that was like where I started. I wanted to get into school by then uh, this fall and uh, with a 166, I think I had maybe at the time of earlier in this year, 160. I'm not I don't remember 166 in June, maybe. Even then, I mean, that was below the 50th percentile at like my top choice school. And uh, I think it was above the 25th percentile. But, you know, what they say, like, if you want to have your best shot at it, you got to be as high as you possibly can. So I pushed it back two years and I'm fine with that. You know, you know, there's a lot of life happening in those two years outside of studying and getting into law school. So, yeah, it, it, it worked out fine so far absolutely and that's a perfect segue for what's next for you i actually a lot of people i think especially k to jds feel that sort of anxiety of this needs to happen on this certain timeline i need it to happen the way that i always plan it out the way that makes sense to friends and family but you've got a bit more perspective you're a non-traditional traditional applicant why don't you tell us a bit about that yeah so i mean i was let's see 2020 i was 20 nine i think when i started studying for that um i just turned 31 in uh november so there was always that kind of thing like oh man i'm 30 i'm 29 i'm 30 like i'm really late in life you know i think if i was 22 right out of high school or right out of college like i i'd probably still feel the same way potentially like oh man i'm 22 because i didn't graduate my undergrad until i was 27 because i was in the military for five years like I said, I mean, there's a lot of life that you're still going to experience and live. And it's not like you have, I'm going to graduate law school at 34. That's still time to have a 30 year career at a minimum. Like that's a lot of time. I don't know what the difference is between a 40 year career and a 30 year career, but it doesn't seem that big to me. 
And when you look at the attrition rates of law careers, it kind of puts that into perspective, too. People don't always make it that long. Right. Or, you know, 50 percent of people at JDs don't practice. It doesn't necessarily. I mean, it op- from what I've heard, you know, there's people that like I I worked at a courthouse, too. So, like, I took different avenues to get experience. So um, by going to work at a courthouse, like I spoke to judges about their uh, careers. I spoke to public defenders, to prosecutors, to private attorneys, and just kind of dug into like what it was they were doing. The more time I took, the more opportunities I had to speak with tons of different um, attorneys and people that are in the profession. So, um, you know, quite honestly, taking more time allowed me to get a clearer picture of the opportunities available. And what I came away with is that, you know, the law runs through everything. So if there's like one thing that you're interested in, there's probably a law about it. And if you want to go into that, like there's that opportunity and you just got to kind of find so far, I'm not an attorney, right? Obviously, but uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to have too much of a struggle finding the thing that it is that I'm passionate about because being fulfilled by a job is something that I'm really concerned with. Um, I don't want to, some people have said, and I've heard, like, you know, I'm in this to make as much money as possible. And I'm like, I'm in this to feel like I'm happy about where I'm at every day and doing something that matters. I'm I'm kind of going off track. We can cut a lot of that. Um, no, I, I think all that is really valuable. And actually, there's a couple of things that I want to come back to in there. But first of all, do you know what kind of law you want to practice? Do you have any leads? So short answer constitutional law i think is where i want to go um i like for me it's constitutional law because i want to eventually be able to protect people's like constitutionally guaranteed rights against the like abuses of people in government quite honestly that's that for me seems like a a higher calling and something that can do good for a lot of people and um you know i feel like if i'm passionate about it now to be actually be in the space and practice in that way and do something that I think is meaningful. Like that's, that's how I'm feel like I'm going to guarantee that I have a good time in that profession for a while. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's super interesting. The biggest thing that stands out to me is how much thought you've put into this and how just to really like paint the clear picture that I'm seeing to make sure that everybody's seeing it too, is that you're somebody who is, really thought about what you want to do. You've talked to people in the field. You didn't just kind of stumble into this because you're like, whoa, like law seems to be the logical next step. Um, You figured out, you tried to get a picture of like what the actual day-to-day life is like in there. Um, And for example, with the LSAT, like you took this test five times. You're committed to this. This is what you want to do. And to everybody out there listening, like this is, this is the type of person that you got to compete in law school with. It just really paints that image of, if you're going to do this, like you got to want it and don't do it just because, right? It's really inspiring to hear you so purpose-driven in this. It's awesome. So you mentioned that you're a veteran. Why don't you tell us a bit about that, about how that impacts your applications, the GI Bill stuff? I know a lot of people are wondering about this. Yeah. So um, having spoken with uh, my, I, I work with an organization that I found called Service to School which is specifically for veterans getting into higher education. Um, but the interesting thing that I've found as a veteran, and I'll, I'll get to GI Bill and, and uh, vocational rehab, but uh, the interesting thing I've found as, a, as an enlisted veteran is that most of the veterans that I've spoken to that are in law school are officers. They've already gone to their undergrad. They spent four years in the military, and then they go to law school. So there is like... Um, kind of a a diversity thing there like i'm not i'm not a urm and you're not going to check the box as a veteran that you're a urm but because of being a veteran i there is a different way that we are evaluated and so um we're not having spoken to my advisor with service service to school veterans aren't really competing against the average applicant that's out of college we're competing against other veterans so we've got a a smaller pool of competition um you know i've i know guys that are getting not know them but i know of them through my mentor my uh, advisor um you know that are getting 164 and they're getting into university of michigan which is top 10 right um 
so there is a different i don't know how to say it um scale i guess or just it's a, a different, different standard a different standard different criteria but everything that i've heard is like being enlisted there are there are so few like minuscule numbers of enlisted veterans that go on to get a professional degree and that sets you apart and it's actually a point as i found out so far is a point in my favor to be enlisted and to have you know get a 96 percentile lsat score like that already raises me above the guys that are six points below me getting into top 10 schools and everything i've heard says like you're enlisted there's fewer of you it's going to work out a little bit better for you because of the student body diversity with the gi bill um you get 36 months if you spend 36 months in active duty you have 36 months and you know if you get an honorable discharge you get 100 percent um availability or 100 percent eligibility so for me i use that at a public institution gi bill will cover 100 percent of tuition at any public institution in the united states and maybe even outside of it i didn't look that far into it when i used it um and I got through school in three years because I had um, 40 credits from studying at a language school in uh, Monterey, California when I was in the military. I was a, I was a Pashto linguist. So um, I used my credits towards my degree and I left with six months left of uh, GI Bill. So there's another program called Vocational Rehabilitation and Education and Employment or Education. I can't remember. It's, but it's VR&E is how we um, describe it or what we call it, um, which is a supplemental um, employment program for veterans. So uh, you have to have a minimum of 30% disability to be eligible for, uh, and that's a 30% service-connected disability rating from the Veterans Administration, the VA health system. So you have to have one month left of, like a minimum of one month left of GI Bill to be able, even able to apply for this. And then you'll get automatically, I think it's like 12 months of um, additional education benefits as opposed to the GI Bill, which will pay 100% of uh, uh, public tuition or it'll pay up to, if you go to a private institutional state, it'll pay up to the most expensive public institution in that state. So, you know, if I wanted to go to Vanderbilt or whatever, $67,000 a year or something like that. And if I went there with the GI Bill, uh, it would pay for whatever the highest public institution in Tennessee is, leaving that remainder left over. Yellow Ribbon, if the school's a yellow ribbon, it could help pay the remainder of that as long as you have GI Bill. If your GI Bill runs out, your yellow ribbon goes away too. Like you only have it as long as your GI Bill is active. So VR&E, on the other hand, will pay 100% of tuition at any institution, public or private, like full stop it'll pay for everything um so i mean i'm the whole thing about lsat or thinking lsat and the lsat demons don't pay for law school and so i'm trying to leverage every everything that i have in my corner to to get through this without having to come out with any debt hopefully so um those are the things that i have available to me um i wouldn't have them available if i hadn't spent five years in the military so taking kind of a longer path and it's it's meandered a lot but um you know i've got a, a full resume that i can apply to these schools with and i've got a lot of personal experience for writing my personal statement or whatever that i was able to draw on and um it it this kind of goes back to like what we were talking about earlier just take a little more time like it, it doesn't need to happen right now because the more time you take the more experience you get doing whatever you take a gap year and do whatever you want like all of that's just going to make you a stronger applicant, I think. And uh, it's going to set you apart eventually from everybody else that you're competing with. So, yeah, nothing is wasted. And thanks for sharing all that information. I'm sure that's going to be very helpful for people who are also veterans or considering that, seeing what their options are. Um, so I, be I believe you said it's the Veteran Readiness and Employment um, Act? Voca Vocational Rehabilitation and education i think or vocational rehabilitation and employment and it's it's different from 
the GI Bill in that it's an employment program specifically and not an education program. So like the end goal there is not to get you a degree, but to get you a job. So it's it's like a, a whole thing all the way through until we know you're employed and it's about getting veterans employed. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It looks like we're talking about the same one. I, um, I think that the name changed or something like that, but if you look up either one, it'll come up. Um, and also if people want to learn more about service to school, Ben and Nathan actually interviewed them on the thinking LSAT podcast, uh, episode 297. If people are interested to hear more about that, um, you're right. The name did change. It's now it's veteran readiness. So it was vocational rehabilitation before you were correct. Yeah. In case people need to look it up or want to learn more about it, um, they can do so. Um, any other words of wisdom that you want to leave people off of people who are trying to do what you did, trying to find the same purpose that you've got? Like, what, what would you say to them? I mean, you gotta, you can't just focus on the LSAT. I think you like, obviously the LSAT's huge. It's your, it's going to be the big thing that like makes up for any other weakness in there. It's going to be the most important thing to get you into law school. But I mean, you got to look beyond just getting into law school. Like getting in is just step one of an entire career. And you got to know what's down the pipeline for you and where you want to go with that degree. So, I mean, working in the courthouse for me, put me in contact with a lot of attorneys and, you know, um, like Rachel Gesserstein is talking about, like, you know, build your network right away. Right. Like before you get into law school, like the thing that's going to help you is getting into your building your network and you got to find out what is down the line for you and start exploring what part of law school or like what part of the law you want to get into. And I think that's incredibly important to think about now, as opposed to if you went to, you know, undergrad and you changed your major three times, like if what happens when you go to law school and you're racking up debt for this degree and you think, wow, I hate law. I don't want to do this. I mean, are you going to, not everyone can be a Ben and Nathan and start a really awesome company, I think. <laughs> so it's, it's really important to, to think about like where you're going to go with this degree and what you're going to use it for and how you're going to, for me, it's like I said before, for me, it's about being fulfilled by what I do. Um, so I don't know, start building your network and uh, start asking anybody and everybody that's in the law for interviews, informational interviews. And I'm not comfortable with that, but the more and more I did it, you know, just like reaching out, like, Hey, would you mind talking to me? Everyone's been super happy to talk with me. So no one has said, no way. I'm not going to tell you about my job. Like people want to tell you about it. If, if this is something you're exploring, they're willing to give you advice. They're willing to tell you about what they did. They want to know about you and they're going to help you. Like, so just, just reach out to people. LinkedIn's a heck of a tool. You know, you just got to be very proactive in this whole thing. If you're being passive, I mean, I think you're, you're doing it wrong. And if you're just going to take what comes to you, you're going to, you're probably going to end up getting a bad deal. So you got to be proactive and go after what you want, I guess, and really know what it is that you want. Totally. I'm hearing two big things. Think about the big picture, the long term, and talk to as many people as you can. We have an email here from Derek. Derek says, hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm preparing for the January LSAT and my scores are currently ranging from low 170s to high 170s. My logic games is consistently minus zero. Logical reasoning is minus zero to minus two, but I need to improve my reading comprehension skills. Okay, good that you have attained perfection on the games. Great that you have gotten good enough at logical reasoning to sometimes get minus zero. That's awesome. And great that you have recognized that you need to improve RC. So lots, lots to like here. Specifically, I need help with tone and purpose questions. Tone questions involve a lot of new vocabulary, parentheses. I never knew that there are so many adjectives to describe tone. And I struggle to distinguish between two answer choices that have the same direction, but different strengths. Oh, okay. so like. They're both negative. But one's stronger in terms of negativity or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Strident disdain. Yeah. Versus uh apprehension. Studied disapproval or something like yeah. that. Um yeah. I mean, I'll just tell you that the answer is studied disapproval. <laughs> because like that, you know, I've never seen a passage where strident disdain was the tone. But anyway. For purpose questions, I find it challenging to differentiate between features in the passage. And the actual purpose, I tend to have high standards for identifying the purpose 
and sometimes see correct answer choices as simply resembling features rather than the purpose. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> you got to recognize that almost all questions in reading comp are must be true questions. And so the correct answer, if it is stating something that is something that must be true, then that's very likely the answer. If there's not another answer that's more on point with the purpose, <laughs> uh, it's very possible that there's some other answer that this, that Derek is choosing that might sound more like the purpose, but has a technical inaccuracy, right? The LSAT is obsessed with not being inaccurate in any way, shape or form. I, I think that's what's happening here, at least for the purpose questions. Derek is seeing an answer that must be true, but not using, but not giving that enough significance and then picking an answer that has something that's maybe a little off about it. Yeah, Derek. wrong. I I think you need to read my blog post. I have a couple blog posts that I would like to refer you to. One blog post is entitled on reading comp. There all must be trues because I mean, that's the thing that you're missing. Derek is that you're like, you're, you're picking an answer that isn't even a must be true based on the passage. Like you're, you're picking something that is like misrepresenting the passage because yeah. you're getting too weird about what the purpose of the passage is. Yeah. Cause the other thing I want to tell you, and I think I wrote a blog post about this too. You should be able to find them on Google. I wrote a blog post that was like, basically on reading comp, they're all main point questions because I, what I did and I went through, I think I went through a sample passage and I was like, well, is that a main point question? And, and basically it was, cause here's my thing is that I think that there are, it's more about the main point than you think it is, Derek. And so when they ask you about the primary purpose of the passage, well, the primary purpose of the passage is always to prove their main point. So what was their main point? You have to pick an answer that is aligned with the main point of the passage. Essentially, you just need to remember that they're testing your reading comprehension. They want to know whether you understood what the passage said and they over and over and over are going to ask you what the main point of the passage was. Author's attitude also, same thing. It's like, well, their attitude is that they have this purpose of proving their main point. They want to prove their main point. And so I think, Derek, you're the perfect level of student, by the way, who is probably missing reading comprehension questions because you're overcomplicating it. Like you don't even realize how easy it actually is, Derek. They're not looking for you to speculate on what the author is probably thinking. They're only asking you what the author actually said. So yeah. just remember that these purpose questions are they're a variant of must be true. So you have to pick an answer that is justified by the passage. Nothing different, nothing extra. Like that's what it said. And purpose questions to me are just like, well, it's basically a main point question, which is basically a must be true question. I don't well, know what you think also, about all that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the same advice can apply to the tone questions that he's talking about here too, because when you identify the main point, um, we did a reading comp passage in my class yesterday, and the main point was something to the extent of, hey, the author thinks that this other theory is mostly good, but inadequate. There's some problems with it. Okay. That's different from outright rejecting that theory, right? Sometimes the authors are like, oh, that's complete bullshit. And so anyways, my point here is that recognizing that the author accepted most of the theory, but thought there were some problems with it also reveals the author's tone for the passage. So when there was a tone question, we're looking to the main point and saying, well, the author didn't outright reject this theory. The right, author, it's not unequivocal. Yeah. It's not complete rejection. denial. Yeah. It's, there's some problems with it. So it's yeah. like, it's measured. <laughs> yeah measured uh you know apprehension or something like that yeah but the point is is that the main point gets you to the correct answer in the tongue question it gets you to the correct correct answer in the purpose question and so someone who looks at your two blog posts and says wait a sec one says they're all main point questions and one says they're all must be true questions 
that seems to be in conflict. Well, no, no actually, that's because all questions are both. And right. that's because the LSAT has such a high standard, it will not tolerate any correct answer that has anything that is mildly inaccurate. Yep. So sometimes I see wrong answers that, boy, they sound much closer to my prediction of the main point or purpose, but they have one little thing that's technically inaccurate, inconsistent with the passage. Boom, that's out. No questions asked. It's over. And so I'm going to pick the technically correct answer, even if it feels a little bit further from the main point or something yep. like that. So yep. anyways, I, I think that's great. And I want to say this again, Derek, I don't even notice tone questions or purpose questions. Mm-hmm. Like they, to me, they just look like must be true main point questions, which all the questions like I predict the answer on most of the questions on reading cop. And I mm-hmm. bet that Derek's not. I think Derek is getting right in. He's like, so Derek is doing it in a very LSAT way instead of just a, you're the smartest person in the room, Derek, you read the fucking document. Why don't you just answer the question before you start looking at the answer choices? You know, I mean, ultimately you're going to be the smartest person in the room if you're a lawyer. Yeah. And you're going to be the best person at reading that document. That's your job. So Try to answer the questions without looking at the answer choices. It's probably simpler than you think. Like sometimes I struggle to come up with a prediction and I end up saying something that to me just sounds really dumb, right? It's like a dumbed down version where it's I end up saying something like, well, you know, I mean, they like you just said, Ben, well, they they accepted most of the theory, but then they rejected part of it. Yeah, exactly. Plain English. Yeah, in plain English, like totally. But it's like, you know, because I'm the smartest person in the room, because I'm the best person at reading this document, I then am going to say like when I when I say it, here's what this says, like I'm going to be like dumbing it down. Right. I'm going to be saying it in like, well, in plain spoken terms. I mean, essentially, they accepted a lot of it, but then they rejected a big part of it. And I'm not predicting the exact words that are going to be there in the tone. Correct answer choice. But my clumsy prediction of accepted most of it and rejected part of it is going to turn out to be an answer choice that is like measured approval or something yep. like that, or like yep. studied or qualified. Yeah. Qualified acceptance. acceptance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's not the words that I predicted. I predicted, well, they kind of liked most of it, but they didn't like part of it. And that helps you with that answer, but it also helps you Hell get yeah. rid of the other answers, right? The well, wrong answers, right. It, it says, you know, complete rejection or whatever. And you're saying, oh, well, it wasn't that. That's not what I just said. No. So, And Derek's right. And Derek is, you know, he's kind of like the ostrich with the head in the sand here because he's not he's he's not mentioning you know, he's going on about, I have high standards. And so these correct answers, you know, they look like they're only resembling features rather than the purpose. And, uh, but my response to that is, all right, dude, but what else are you going to pick? Yep. (laughs) Because the answer that you're actually ending up picking here is just not even justified by the passage. You're picking something that is like, I don't care about whether we're actually getting to the tone or whether we're actually getting to the purpose or whatever. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I need yeah. an answer that I feel comfortable vouching for because that's just it's based on the record. Yeah. And so, Derek, you might need to do a little like more stringent process of elimination on like the the answer that you're picking. You're standing up in court and you're you're saying, yes, your honor, the record reflects this. These words like the record shows this. And uh, no, it does not. If you're missing that question. (laughs) So you need to pick something that is shown by the record and stop worrying so much about does this reflect the author's purpose or whatever? I mean, I never I have never said that in class. I've never I've never been like, oh, well, that would be correct. But that wasn't the actual purpose. Yeah, that's not a thing. Okay, continuing. Yep. As for passage type, I struggle a lot with natural science passages. I have significant trouble comprehending the explanation for the central phenomenon. For example, it's hard for me to understand how the brain generates airflow, how rocks roll around on the seabed, 
or why we see things flipped left to right, but not top to bottom in a mirror. That's one of the trickiest reading comp passages, the mirror one. Yeah, yeah. Natural science passages are the most significant cause of time loss. Ooh. In my reading comp section. Okay, so it seems like you're you're keeping track of your time, Derek, which is not helping you to learn about how the brain generates airflow or how rocks roll around on the seabed or why we see things flipped left to right, but not top to bottom in a mirror. And Derek says, I almost always miss more questions on natural science passages, no matter the difficulty. Couple hmm. things there. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Is very possible. Selection bias is very possible. It could not even be real. You could just be perceiving this. You when you do poorly, you notice it was a natural science yep. passage. But when you do well, you don't even pay attention. Yep. Yep. <laughs> or when you do poorly on a not natural sciences passage, you either perceive it as a natural sciences passage or you just forget. Oh, that yeah. there was that one about. Oh, but that was hard. Social yeah. science. Yeah, but that was a hard one. And you just kind of write it off so that you could. You could uh, preserve this preconceived notion that you're always going to do worse on natural science passages. Yep. And I think you're yeah, you're probably freaking out because you're thinking like, I don't I don't see passage type either. Right. Like Mm -hmm. the people if you're look, it's a legal document. Okay, you're not a scientist. You're a lawyer. This document is not here for purposes of scientific research. This document is here for legal purposes. So. What does it say? Like, you're not meant to know anything about, you know, that mirror one. It is a mind bender, but they tell you everything you need to know. You just have to read it and you have to learn from it. And it sounds like Derek is like managing the time and worrying about natural sciences. And oh, my God, I don't understand any. I don't understand. It's hard for me to understand these things. And it's like, no, because you're a great reader, Derek. You score minus zero sometimes on logical reasoning. Like there's no question about your ability to read. I just don't think you're applying that ability to read on these natural sciences passages. Yeah. And I would add that there are many occasions where I say out loud or in my head, if I'm just taking the test by myself, but when I'm talking in class, which is what happens most these days, I'm saying, well, I don't really understand that, but I do clearly understand that this thing over here is making this other thing get hotter. Yep. And I don't, I can't sit here and explain to you why that's possible. And they may be trying to say that right there, but I I don't fully grasp it, but I get the idea. This thing is making this other thing hotter. Let's move. Let's keep going. Yeah. Some intense terminology that they give you. It's like, well, you don't have to know exactly what that means. You just have to know broad, big picture what they're talking about. Yeah. And you, you're allowed to let things just be technical terminology, right? If they say, oh, it's the lateral medial blah, blah, blah in the brain that causes this thing. OK, you're not meant to know what all that means. You just go, oh, you say it's the lateral media, blah, blah, blah. That causes this. Yep. So when we talk about the lateral media, blah, blah, blah. Right. That causes. I know. <laughs> dementia or whatever it is. Yeah. And then you get it. You're like, you get the big picture, even though you don't know what the lateral media blah, or why blah, blah. that does it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like Derek is just thinking a lot about question type and passage type and a little bit of managing the time. Yep. And instead you need to just think about it as, Hey man, you're a lawyer. This came into your law office. You don't have a choice. It, you know, like I think sometimes kids are like, well, I didn't want to be a scientist. So, you know, I'm never going to do anything like this. Mm-hmm. bullshit <laughs> you could be a family lawyer and there could be some document that comes in that requires you to understand to like learn some things about science yeah you don't hear lawyers saying oh that's just beyond me oh, oh that's not just, uh yeah not, not a not good a, look like oh yeah, i'm bad at math i'm not I'm a, a math lawyer. guy uh, yeah <laughs> fuck off <laughs> okay yeah you're not my lawyer then at all <laughs> you can be a lawyer who's bad at math you're just not my lawyer yeah because, you know, like you don't have to be the a math that we're talking about. Yeah. You have to be able to read a document about calculus. Yeah. OK. Derek continues. I have tried to improve my understanding of these passages by reading issues of Scientific American and focusing on the natural science section. 
However, I do not find it difficult to comprehend these articles as they often use colloquial language in their publications. It's difficult to find poorly written science passages. Boy, Derek, yeah, he says, any suggestions? Best, Derek. Derek, the the challenge with these articles on the LSAT is that they are poorly written. I agree. They're written by academics or the LSAT itse- LSAC itself has made the, the passages harder. I've seen that too, where I've looked up the original source and it was written more clearly than the <laughs> right. one on the test. Right. They took but, something from Scientific American and then made it shittier yeah. because they needed to make it harder to read because it's not for public consumption. It's for the law school admission test. And yeah. they're testing your reading comprehension. So the way they do that is they take two sentences and combine it into one sentence so that it makes it harder to read. Yeah. Or they take verbs and they turn them into nouns and they just make things yeah. more abstract and they remove subjects. So it's not someone doing something to somebody else. It's just the thing happening. So or there could be a thesis sentence at the top, a headline and accompanying pictures. And those are all gone now. Yeah. You know? And they just get right into the argument instead of the like statement of the findings and the thesis of the argument and then go through the argument. Instead, they just get right into the argument without any prep. I do have a tip, Derek, though. Derek says it's hard to find difficult to find poorly written science passages. No, it's not. I've got a hundred of them for you. It's called the science passages on the reading comp in the LSAT. We have a hundred LSATs and I I just hate, I don't, I really don't like this, this idea that you're going to go out and do outside reading that is going to somehow prepare you for the reading comp on the law school admission test. Instead, I would just do all of the reading comp on the law school admission test. Yeah. Well, the thing that I wanted to talk to Derek about is that I agree. These, these articles written by journalists are better written. They are rewriting sentences so that each sentence clicks easier for their reader. They don't and want poorly written sentences. It has a sentences. headline and a subhead. <laughs> like they're yeah, giving you the pictures, main point before yeah. you read the document. Yeah. Uh, so I agree with those problems, but I don't know that your problem is comprehending hard language anyway, because you're already doing very well on logical reasoning and you're doing well, presumably on most of reading comps. So I think you can decode these poorly written sentences. You're just not letting yourself do You need it. to use your LR skills on reading comp, Derek. Yeah. You're, you're thinking that, that reading comp is a totally different, different beast. And it's really not like anybody who's good at logical reasoning can also be good at reading comp. You just, you know how you predict the answers on logical reasoning. You need to start doing that on reading comp. If you're a Demon Live subscriber, we have a class called LSAT Cross Training. Uh, editor Eric teaches that class and he does them in rotation, but he shows you how you can use your strengths on games to get better at reading comp. And he has another one that's on using your strengths in logical reasoning to get better at reading comp. Derek, the stuff you're doing in LG and LR can definitely make you better at RC. You just got to get out of your own way, I think. Yeah. We have an email here from Nico. Hello, Ben and Nathan. I hope you both have had a great start to the new year. I had a question regarding the URM bump. I have heard from several, from multiple sources that schools do not give the URM bump, that's underrepresented minority bump, if you do not provide a valid diversity statement illustrating what diversity you can bring to the institution. Multiple sources, huh, Nico? Yeah, that's, that actually makes it sound like one. <laughs> it makes it sound like bullshit. It makes it sound like yeah. people on Reddit. I mean, yeah. what what is your what's your evidence for that? Like, do you, really? Because it just doesn't stand to reason. I suppose it could be true. Like, but if a, well, if a so school what's knows the point? That- <laughs> the point of giving the bump is one. They're trying to help. My minorities, right? Or they're just trying to increase the diversity of their class so that looks better for them. I don't care what their motivation is. They have a motivation. Why would they then hinge that on you writing a diversity statement? Right. Are they stupid? Like, do they really need you to tell them what it means to be black if you're checking the box that you're black? Yeah. Do they really need to know 
how you being black increases the diversity of their school. <laughs> like, uh, because there's not any other black people there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not telling black people not to write a Nico weirdly says a valid diversity statement. Yeah. But like if you have the obvious kind of diversity that they're looking for, which is like, you know, black and Latinx is underrepresented in law school. If you are black or Latinx, you're going to get a URM bump. And sure, write a person, write a diversity statement. Fine. <laughs> but the checking the box tells that's a fact that is telling them a lot and it tells the world a lot and it's the check on the bot it's the it's the checked box that goes on their 509 report and that goes out into the world your diversity statement they're the only ones that are ever going to see it not the world not the world the world's going to see your race and ethnicity i guess we should have kept reading nico's email here look at what he says next Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that schools only care about checking the box to improve their demographic statistics on the 509. Look, that might be their only reason. I don't know. actually know their motivation. That's one motivation, probably. Another one is maybe they really want to diversify their school or whatever. Um, well, there are diverse- The motivation there- doesn't matter. <laughs> That's my point, right? Is that checking the box accomplishes whatever their goal is. I think the reason why they even have a diversity statement is so that they can consider giving a bump to white folks who came from poverty or, you know, like maybe your your parent was incarcerated. Maybe you worked and supported a family when you were in high school. And, you know, there's like, or other forms of diversity that aren't easily checkable, right? Such as religious diversity or whatnot. Who yeah. Knows? Who who knows what? And but like I'd love to see these sources that say that black or Latinx, <laughs> you don't actually get any benefit for being black or Latinx if you don't write a valid diversity statement. Yeah. Let's see who's saying that. I don't, I don't, I'd I'm not going to accept multiple sources like imagine if that's what nico tried to get it get through in a um in a legal uh, in a legal argument <laughs> like a brief to the judge you know oh yeah. well your honor i mean multiple sources say that schools don't give you the yeah. urm bump <laughs> it's commonly assumed that yeah <laughs> the judge is like who now <laughs> what i've never heard of this multiple sources who who's that now <laughs> yeah just give me one let's start with <laughs> let's one, start with one. Then- <laughs> yeah yeah okay um, so nico yeah, yeah. Continue. Secondly, just like personal statements and essays, I think a quote valid diversity statement can be bought. What I would love to. Uh, I think the idea is you pay someone else to write it. <laughs> but it's the facts that they care about. I mean, they. Wow, Nico, you're overthinking this shit. If you're URM, check the box and write a diversity statement. If you're not yep. a URM, stop thinking about this. And whether you're an URM or not a URM, work on your damn LSAT instead. Yeah, I mean, thank you for writing really in. Meant. Don't get me wrong. Like, I appreciate you, Nico. But like worrying about this stuff or like reading multiple sources on Reddit um, is not helping your LSAT. And that's what you really need to be thinking about. Yeah. Uh, we have a, an email from Anonymous here. The subject is, is guessing really random? Message says, I was thinking about the situation where I narrow down to two answers. I'm assuming that one of them is the correct answer. Do I really have a 50% chance of guessing the answer? Uh, I would presume, yes, you do. My thoughts are, one, the correct answer was written to be chosen when someone correctly understood the passage slash game and or question correctly. It is designed to feel right when you get the click. Two, The wrong answer was written by an expert to be attractive to someone who didn't understand the passage or game and or question correctly. It is designed to feel right when you didn't get the click. Since obviously I didn't fully understand something due to my being able to being unable to spot the correct answer, I would think I'm more likely to pick the wrong answer than the correct one. Therefore, would it be a good idea when you find yourself in this situation to randomly guess rather than picking the one that feels right? Or should I trust my intuition and just pick the one that seems the most correct instead? I mean, there's another strategy here that Anonymous doesn't mention, which is the George Costanza strategy 
of do the opposite. So you get to <laughs> you, you you get to a 50-50 and you're like, well, I'm missing something here. I'm leaning toward that one, but since I'm Costanza and I'm an idiot, I'll do the other one. And yeah. um <laughs> so of those three strategies, what do you think would be the best strategy here? Well, wait. I thought you were going to mention a fourth strategy and that is actually figure stop. that shit out. <laughs> yeah. Stop and read. Yeah. Like, I don't like this idea of coming up with a strategy for guessing when you're down to two, when you're down to two, yeah. you've done you're some work. I thought there. This, yeah. I thought this email was actually going to be about the, the questions you never even look at. Like is guessing really random? No, what actually happens is, with, this is yeah. about once you're in the weeds, it's like, okay, well, if you're in the weeds, let's figure this shit out. And, huh, if you've done that and you've done all the work and you're still stuck between two, then I want you to go with what you think is correct. Yeah. And you're going to be want right, you to like, double. I don't want you to gain this. I want you no. to figure out, do your best shot. And you're going to be wrong, right like 75% of the time. Yeah. And if you're wrong, then you learn from it. If you're right, then you start to build that like, oh, okay. I really was understanding it. I just yeah. need to see why. Yeah. I want to double down on this advice that you need to, you need to continue working on that question and figure that shit out. Yeah. You, lawyers don't take 50 fifties. Lawyers figure that shit out. I've said this so many times, but it definitely needs to be said again. Narrowing it down to a 50 50 isn't really that valuable. Narrowing it That's down what to a most 50 people 50, do. Yeah. But you did, you did half the work and you're going to get paid half the salary. And in a real way, right? You're, yeah. you're going to get half a point for that question. You're going to get it right half the time. You're going to get it wrong half the time. An economist says you're getting half a point for that question when you accept that 50-50. But that's really pretty shitty because you were going to get a one out of five, right? It, from completely randomly guessing. So you didn't spend any time on it whatsoever. You randomly guessed on it. You still get it right 20% of the time. You get two tenths of a point if you randomly guess on a question. If you 50-50 guess on a question, you only get five tenths of a point. So you did all this work to get three tenths more of a point. Yep. But if you did a little bit more work, you might go from half a point all the way up to a full point. And yeah, so it's more valuable to solve that one, right? Like turning a 50-50 into I figured it out yeah. is way more valuable than narrowing it down to a 50-50 in the first place. Yeah, it's almost twice as valuable. So, yeah, you've done two minutes worth of work to get yourself to that 50 50. That's not great. But now if you spend another minute on it or another two minutes on it, you might actually solve it and get it right, which is a way more valuable use of your time than the first two minutes that got it to the 50 50 in the first place. Well, not only in that very moment, but also for everything that's going to follow from here on out. You're teaching yourself how to solve the question in the absence of knowing right. what the right answer is, right? When you get to the end of the test and then you say, oh, what's the right? Oh, I got it wrong. What was the right answer? And then you figure it out. Well, that's great. That's the only thing you can do at that point. But how much value are you getting out of that process by having someone else tell you what the answer is and then you figure it out versus you don't know anything and you solve it? That's a huge win for like so many things that are going to come after that. A thousand percent, Ben. And I think you actually just got to the main difference, like the main difference between us at LSAT Demon and everyone else is that we are teaching you how to actually solve these questions instead of letting you have these bullshit guessing strategies mm -hmm. like that's why we get the transformative improvement in people. Yeah, I think is because I've never thought about it really that way until just right now. But if you develop that skill on this one question of, you know what, I'm going to ignore the sunk cost of the two minutes that I've already spent. I'm going to ignore the idea of finishing this section. I'm going to take more time and solve this question so that I can get a full point instead of a half a point. The magic happens when you solve that one and then realize that the LSAT is solvable. Mm -hmm. That's another way of saying exactly what you just said, Ben. But yeah, you, no, you just right. kind of blew my mind where it's like, oh, yeah, because <laughs> we're we're teaching you to fish, essentially. Mm -hmm. You know, you're yeah. like 
you're like, well, I'm going to get half a fish, but you know, how can I slightly increase my chances of getting the full fish, you know, so that I get my expectation up to 60% of a fish. And I'm like, no, I want to teach you how to fish. Cause it's not just about this question. It's about the next one too. Yep. Yeah. I, I just want to go back and tell you anonymous that you're, I just don't think you should even settle for these 50 fifties. Like it's not okay. And it's not like, well, I know it's one of these and I have to keep moving. I have to get to the end of the section. So I have to accept this, this half-assed guess. Mm-hmm. No, you got to figure it out. You might as well figure it out now. Cause if you don't figure it out now, you're going to have to figure it out in your review. And then you're, you're figuring it out with help. So you don't know how much right. you actually did on your own. That's and that's what we were just talking about. I, I do remember the one thing I, I was thinking, and that is sometimes new students get excited because they start getting their answers down to two answers. They pick the wrong answer, but they're like, hey, I was down to two and the one I didn't pick turned out to be correct. Yeah. Yeah. And and what I always want to say to them is, hey, look around you. Everyone else is in that exact same situation. Everyone has gotten it down to two and they're struggling between those two. So that's not an achievement. The real achievement is getting it down to one. And it's much better to get it down to one on five of the questions than to get it down to two on 10 of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like we could show you the math on that. It's yeah. it's, it's simple. I mean, the, the math is I can do it in my head right now. If you do five of them and get them all right and randomly guess on the next five. Well, you got the first five, right? And then you get one out of the next five. So you get six points out of 10. Yep. Six and out if you 10. get, if you get to a 50, 50 on 10 questions, then you're going to get five of those, right? So that's five out of 10. Pretty simple, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's not even, it's not even limited to that because it's yeah. also limited to the next question. Like no, it's also number 11. Yeah is like you're going to be better equipped to solve number 11 if you were carefully solving all the questions along the way. Yeah. Email daily at lsatdemon.com if you'd like to ask us a question or share some LSAT or law school admissions news. Thanks for listening.